One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. This month, our Meet the BIPOC Press Roundtable is looking forward. What are the stories that will be driving news coverage in the coming year, especially for communities of color and the media that serve them? Every month, as you know, here on The Laura Flanders Show, we invite the members of URL Media, a national network of black and brown-owned media outlets, to share their perspective on a key issue or issues. This time, we are looking at the year ahead. What stories are the network's members watching on the economy, housing, finance, politics, not to mention reproductive justice, voting rights, public health, you name it. For this, I am happy to be joined once again by Mitra Kalita, the co-founder of URL and the publisher of Epicenter NYC, a newsletter based in Queens, New York. Also with us from Miami is Alexandra Martinez, senior news reporter at PRISM, an independent, non-profit newsroom led by journalists of color and focused on justice. And joining us is Malak Silmi. Malak is the local government reporter for Outlier Media, which is a Detroit-based platform that works collaboratively with residents to keep government accountable. So where to turn up the heat, where to shed more light? We're talking about reporting in 2023. And I want to thank you all for joining the show today. Let's kick off with you, Mitra. You know, we always look forward. We start looking forward by looking back. And as I look back, I was reminded that this is essentially the marking two years of us collaborating on this monthly roundtable of URL media existing. Um, and I just wanted to ask you how it's going. It looks to me like it's going gangbusters. It's going great. Thank you, Laura. And thank you for being a part of that journey. Um, I think it's kind of impressive that we're starting 2023 with two members from Outlier and Prism that weren't with us two years ago when URL launched. So one, um, you know, kind of not to bury the lead, but the size of the network um, feels a really important part of our growth. And then the scope of the network. So being able to include an outlet like Prism that focuses on social justice issue and is for social justice issues and is for people of color, by people of color, um, you know, someone like Outlier Media, I'll say beyond URL media, just in my role running a newsletter in Queens um, as the publisher of Epicenter, I draw a lot of inspiration from its ability to text with um, its community and really use um, translations and you know languages uh, besides English at the inception of its reporting. And um, so I just feel like the story for us has been um, both a broadening of our scope and our reach, but not sacrificing the depth yeah. of service to our communities and the issues that we care about. And just to recap, and we call this meet the BIPOC press, that term BIPOC was coming into sort of mass use when we started today. There's already some kind of pushback from different communities. How are you feeling about it? And remind people, you know, what it stands for and why it's important to you. So BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous uh, People of Color. Um, it is a controversial term. We've leaned into it because the roots of URL, uh, we believe ourselves to be the only multi-platform, multicultural network of our kind, meaning we are Black and Brown. Um, and, 
You know, I've embraced the term, even though I have to say it doesn't roll off my tongue. Um, <laughs> terms for me that were revolutionary as I was coming of age was the transition from minority to people of color. Um, right. You know, even identifying as a woman of color, um, you know, feels, um, dare I say, like more recent in my identity as far as being a mainstream acceptance. Um, that being said, um, one of the benefits of being a network that is, you know, I'll use the term again, by our people, for our people, is that we recognize the nature of being a part of this collective doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice yeah. who you are or the many facets of identity um, that we all bring to the table. And so we do believe it's possible to be intersectional um, within even this limited term. Um, and we, I should mention, Laura, we have 20 partners today and they span... Um, you know, Native, East Asian, um, South Asian, immigrant focused, um, you know, immigrant queens kind of like focused on an identity within a geography, immigrant, um, <laughs> right? So I think even the intersectionality of the network is... A, is it's super exciting. Uh, let me bring uh, in our guest here, Alexandra. Let's talk about your multiple identities, both as an individual and as an outlet. Um, talk a bit about PRISM, how you think about who it is you're serving, what your mission is, um, and what you bring to it, especially, Alexandra. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. So um, PRISM, as Mitra mentioned, we are a BIPOC-led newsroom, um, and that is incredibly important because uh, we are telling stories about um, communities that we ourselves as reporters have experience in. So that creates... Um, it allows us to bring nuance to the reporting that we do, which without that nuance, you really can't have honest, uh, truthful storytelling. And so um, you ask me about my identities. I am Cuban-American, I'm Latina, um, proud Miamian, born and raised. Um, and I bring that in everything that I that I report on. And what about you, Malak? What, how, what would you bring to this conversation? And what can you tell us about outlier media that we need to know? So Outlawing Media is led by women of color, and we do focus on Detroit. And Detroit itself is a huge city that ha is majority Black. Um, so we really focus on some issues that pertain to Black Detroiters. Um, me, myself, I am Arab American Muslim, specifically Palestinian American. And there are some, um, there's an Arab American population in Detroit. And um, through Outlier Media, I have been able to use my Arab um, heritage, as well as our, my Arabic language, um, to translate our services and our informational needs to Arab Detroiters, um, but also focusing on a lot of issues that Black Detroiters and other immigrant communities um, really face in Detroit. So let's talk about greatest hits. I have to say, I looked at Outlier Media's greatest hits of 2022 story. You collaborated on that story. Uh, I couldn't take my eyes off the videos of that ridiculous slide. Um, but I do know that there were other things that happened in Detroit this year that you reported on. What would you lift up as especially important or work that you're particularly proud of? I would say um, one article that we did work on this year was in collaboration with the Detroit Free Press. Um, at Outlier Media, we do collaborate with a lot of local media partners. Um, and we focused on this new uh, water affordability program that Detroit, the city of Detroit launched. 
I mean, it's to really make water more affordable for residents. And we have this problem in Detroit where um, in, in past years, water shutoffs was something that a lot of Detroit residents would um, face. I mean, it's frankly because they could not afford uh, the water bills. And so the city of Detroit launched this new water affordability program back in August. Um, and we wrote about it and we looked into it, but something that we have been focusing on is to see where that future funding is. Um, the program right now is using federal dollars as well as state dollars and regional dollars, but it's only meant to be funded for 18 months. Yeah. Past that 18 months, there isn't really, uh, there are some efforts, but there isn't anything permanently secured. Um, and so that's something that we are looking into and hoping that, you know, res residents are able to hold on to this program and be able to only pay the $18 a month or 56, like 18 to $56 a month based on their income levels. Um, so that's really something that I've been proud of um, focusing on and highlighting on last year and hoping to continue reporting in the next year. What about you, Alexandra? Greatest hits of 22? I think for me, the the coverage I did on workers' rights is something I'm I'm very proud of. Um, we we did a lot of coverage on um, Amy's Kitchen. So Amy's Kitchen is a vegan food company um, out in California, and they the workers decided to unionize back. It's been a year now, I think, in, since January of last year, um, and their employers immediately started union busting. Um, and most recently, the workers are calling on a boycott of Amy's Kitchen products. Um, and, you know, I've done a couple follow up stories on that. And as a result of that, um, folks from No Evil Foods, another vegan food company, reached out to us at Prism um, and they as well experienced extreme uh union busting when they tried to formalize a union a couple of years ago. And what was most interesting in this reporting is that these companies, you know, tout themselves as being ethical or morally conscious um, and, you know, being humane towards animals, but they're not treating their workers humanely. <laughs> and that's something that we're seeing across the board in all industries, right? From uh, railroad workers to teachers and now is even to vegan food companies. Fantastic. I mean, I don't know how you decide what it is that you do, Alexander. You've covered worker issues from, as far as I can see, dairy farms in Vermont to, as you say, vegan food f groups in, in California. Um, I want to come back to how you set your priorities. But before I do, Mitra, I'm sure you have many things to choose from as you look back over the year, but what stands out? Um, I'll pick up on um, two threads um, from from these ladies. One is um, workers continue to be centered at Epicenter. Um, and I feel like we our, our lead story yesterday was on the nurses strike um, here in New York City um, and the success that those workers have met, been met with. And we've just seen over the last two years, and I feel like, Laura, I've said this on a few of our shows, <laughs> but... Um, you know, even the New York Times was striking last month, right? So we really have seen a series of worker actions and they're not, they're, they're being met. Um, so we've, we've chronicled that um, with great success. The other piece, um, which Malak was getting at in terms of utilities and um, just the basics of what people need right now. Um, I think this is the year that much of mainstream America is accepting that yeah. we are either in or about to enter a recession. I think for communities of color, we've been there for the last year. And so um, you're seeing this with demand at food pantries, utilities, housing. 
Um, one of the things I'm proudest of is that we covered um, the explosion of um, food insecurity, but we did it in a way that empowered um, the reader. So what- Now you can, said that, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, well, we empowered the reader in terms of what could you do about this? The other thing is, what are the factors that are leading people to seek this help? Feels like the undercovered story in mainstream media. So when we're online with folks um, for the food pantry, we'll say, why are you here? And chances are, it's really not food that's prompted them to line up. It's that their rent has gone up and they need to make up the difference in something. And food happens to be an area, especially since the pandemic, that um, not just the government, but other institutions from churches to neighborhood organizations to mutual aid have consistently been picking up the slack. Whereas on housing insecurity, utilities, and some of the other issues we've just talked about, there really isn't relief. And so I think the spillover effect of housing is going to be, we covered it last year, but I think it is the key issue of 2023. Well, I mean, Malak, you talked about it, you touched on it, about relief programs, and it seems like that is going to be one of the big stories, at least for the first half of 2023. I mean, Detroit, under the American Rescue Plan, saw its biggest ever like investment of federal dollars, a, a one-time deal. I think it was over $800 million to Detroit. Much of that is set to expire in the next few months months. Can you talk about sort of underlying conditions, what's changed, what hasn't, and whether this experience of relief fueled any sense of new expectations or demands or senses of, of, of righteous um, outrage about being cut off again? Yeah, definitely. So it's specifically with the water affordability program that is using ARPA funding. Um, and that's something that um, residents would want to see continue. Um, and so having the opportunity to have regional and specifically federal funding um, back into the local communities and, and able to fund these programs that could potentially be long-term and help our uh, Detroit residents is something that local activists and local residents have been pushing for. Um, and really to see that the city is listening to their concerns and able to come up with this um, program in order to end, you know, city shutoffs like the mayor has promised um, has been something that's been on the minds of a lot of uh, advocates and residents. And so moving forward, really a lot of advocates, residents, as well as reporters like me are really um, excited to see where the city goes about this and if they are going to be continuing to get some more of this regional and funding, different avenues of funding um, in order to really move about with um, aiding the residents in paying their bills with uh, when it comes to water. And Alexandra, you've been seeing this, I think, in relation to temporary um, uh, rights and, and visas for immigrants, um, federal action on abortion pills. Like, we're in a tremendous sort of tipping point moment, it seems to me, for all these kinds of actions. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of changes. Uh, most recently, the FDA did approve, um, you know, ease, they eased access for the abortion pill over the counter mifepristone and misoprostol, um, which is great. But uh, PRISM actually just came out with a story this morning that, it, you know, that ease of access is not really for everyone, you know, a BIPOC people are still going to have a harder, um, harder access, harder, they're going to have a harder time accessing these pills and this service um, 
because of um, where they are and what the what the laws are, because abortion remains banned in so many states across the across the country. Yeah, I mean, the availability of the morning after pill, so-called at chain stores doesn't help you if there isn't a chain store in your area. Absolutely. And that as well. What about you, Mitra? I mean, these this question of sort of um, the the expiring of a whole set of emergency uh, legislations when the emergency, especially for your constituents, isn't over, seems like an enormous story and alarm bells do not seem to be ringing in mainstream media, so-called. Thank you for raising that, Laura. I mean, I think um, there is a spillover effect, especially in... Um, States like New York, although I think it'd be the case in um, cities like Miami and Detroit as well, where um, there's a little bit of picking up the slack for some of these other states. So you're definitely seeing the tension, um, whether it's an issue like abortion or uh, migrants at the border, and um, really kind of an existential question of what our states and our cities' um, roles are in this. You're also seeing, um, as, as you just alluded to, um, you know, is COVID really over, right? Is the pandemic over? And the last few years, for better or worse, like we've critiqued the response quite a bit on this program um, to the pandemic and how it, you know, unduly affected people of color. But at least there were federal dollars behind um, a lot of efforts, whether it was small business or um, just testing or, um, you know, COVID treatment. And so this year, I feel like a lot is coming to a head. The number of small businesses that have shuttered in just the first three weeks of this year that Epicenter has been reporting on um, is pretty astounding, yeah. right? And so I think you're seeing a sense, um, certainly from entrepreneurs, where two years ago, it felt like there's a lifeline. I think this year, people are just not seeing that lifeline. You're seeing that certainly in business and entrepreneurship. I think you're seeing that in public health and, you know, for outlets like mine that have been, you know, two days a week in underserved Southeast Queens, you know, I just got an email from our community site supervisor who says, you know, I'm still going to go there every month because these are under vaccinated communities, right? These are communities yeah. that don't have connectivity to a lot of other services. And She's doing that for free. We don't have a federal grant anymore, but we're doing it because we're in service to that community. And so I think those are the sorts of um, examples, but also the very real tensions that BIPOC media yeah. and um, cities like ours are going through right now. So we've talked a little bit about the reporting you have done, the reporting that needs to be done. Um, let's talk a bit about how you do your reporting. And I want to come to you, Malak, with Outlier, because we just talked about lifelines and emergencies. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Outlier grew out of a kind of emergency that your community was not being served. And the lifeline that you discovered for doing some of the reporting was pretty close to hand, was local people. Um, talk about your documenter program, how it works. And I was excited to see that in some of your stories, you can actually go and find online the full notes that your documenter um, took at a meeting. Yeah, so we operate, we have a text message service system as well as a documenters program. And both of these are really um, to connect with residents as well as to connect to local meetings. And so with our documenters program, we actually employ um, citizens from across the city, um, from across the state to really go into these local meetings, whether virtually or in person, and just 
simply document, which means live tweet or open up a Google Doc and write down what you're what you're hearing. Um, and this has helped serve a lot of reporters as well as a lot of citizens and really anyone who's curious to hear about the different local meetings that are happening, regional meetings across the county and in city. Um, and it really has fueled a lot of reporting as well. Some things go missing when there aren't any, you know, live meeting minutes or uh, recording the next day, um, and you want to quickly go back and review something. And that's where our documenters um, come in and are able to really capture meetings in an amazing way. Um, and it's such a service to almost everyone. For me, I've gotten a lot of articles outside of documenters' notes um, and really even back to down, down to the basics of like, was this meeting accessible? Was, you know, like were people allowed in or did they post the meeting details online? Did they send a public notice? And who are some of your documenters? Tell us, are these experienced journalists who have been doing it forever, went to school for it? These are local citizens who are just, who might be like, who might be interested in just going to the city council meeting and sharing public comment um, or who are just interested in their local government. They are students. We have Wayne State University students local to Detroit. We also have older senior citizens. We have Detroiters. We have from the suburbs. It's a very, I would say, diverse pool of candidates who are applying for these meetings to go and really just document for the, for the sake of having that information out there. It's such a great program. So exciting. And to a crisis in journalism that those were exactly the meetings that local media no longer had the resources to fund. How about you, Alexandra? What would you lift up uh, in terms of how you're doing reporting that's maybe new or different or innovative? And how do you decide what to cover? Right. Well, I know that I, I cover a wide breadth of, of topics, uh, workers' rights, immigration, LGBTQIA and gender justice, the economy, housing, um, as PRISM's um, Senior news reporter, I yes, I cover a wide range. Um, so I my reporting is mostly remote. While I'm based in Miami, I do try and highlight, you know, everything that's going on here in Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis. There is no shortage of news um, from the Stop Woke Act to Don't Say Gay to all of the uh horrible legislation that he is putting out there. Um, there's a lot to cover. Um, even in Miami, they were trying to move a houseless encampment to an island a few months ago. So there's a lot going on locally. Um, but, you know, my reporting does happen nationally. And when that's the case, um, it's a lot of research on my computer, calling people on the phone, doing my due diligence, because even though I'm not physically there, um, it's incredibly always important to maintain a relationship with the communities that we're reporting on and make sure that I'm not um, perpetuating any generalizations that may exist within a community or about a community. So even if we're remote, we're trying to do our due diligence and be as thorough in our reporting as possible. You talk a lot at PRISM about interrupting um, false narratives, um, toxic narratives. What do you mean by that? And can you give us an example? Absolutely. So I've encountered that a lot with the reporting I've done on houseless communities. Um, and I think from the, the reporting approach and um, the approach when we're editing a story, we think a lot about that in the language that we use. Um, so for example, uh, when I'm covering houselessness 
we go back, we're a small team, we're only 14 people. So we are constantly in communication with each other. And I think that shows in our reporting because we're all very thoughtful about what we're putting out there. Um, but we think a lot about what words are we using to describe a community, homeless versus houseless. And we always wanna make sure that we're using the language that the folks that are being impacted are using and that they want to use, right? So it's not, we are not the experts here. The people and the communities that we're reporting on are the experts. Um, and so when I've spoken to houseless communities, um, they always share with me that the way that that they are constantly in a battle to um, disrupt the mm. image of houseless communities. So, so can we just unpack that for a second? So if, for example, you're talking about the encampment of houseless people in Oakland or in, in I think it was Oakland, um, yeah. They would say they have a home and they don't want it to be destroyed. It's that encampment. What they don't have is a house. Is, is that the important st distinction? Correct. Absolutely. That's the distinction between homeless versus houseless. They, mm -hmm. have a, they have a home. They're living there. They're, their lives are there. And actually, I just I had an interview yesterday with um, folks in the um, Cobb on Wood encampment over in West Oakland. Uh, it's a community that they've created using uh, a technique in which they use earth and sand, water, and other natural resources to build these structures. And they've created a community with an apothecary, a shower, a, a community garden, and they're living there. It's along, it's under a highway overpass in, in West Oakland. Um, and they are little by little essentially being evicted and they're in constantly they're constantly being threatened of um, of having the entire structure be demolished. Um, and so to go back, I was on an interview recently with one of the folks who lived there and they're, they're scared. They're scared that one day they're going to show up to their home and have all of their possessions destroyed, gone. Um, another story that I wrote about um, the houseless community here in Miami, there was actually a lawsuit because their, their cat was was killed um, in one of these sweeps, one, the cleaning sweeps that the city does of these um, encampments, and that's you know they're they're scared that they're going to lose everything, and beyond that, they're angry that the city is not taking into account their solutions. And so at Prism, what we always want to do is center the solutions from the community that's impacted, right? Mm -hmm. So go to them. How do you want, how do you refer to your community? How should we be referring to your community? And what are the solutions that your community sees for yourselves? And mm -hmm. that's the narrative that we try and, you know, put out there. Mitra, you always have your eye both on the network as a whole, nationally, even internationally, um, and also right here at home. And I saw a tweet um, about what happened at your local city council uh, person's home. Uh, was it the night of Dr. King holiday? Our, our uh, city councilman, Shaker Krishnan, who, um, you know, we've, we've both done a lot of work with and, and covered his, um, he's, his rise, he's the first Indian American um, city council uh, member in New York City um, and represents Jackson Heights, who the area that Epicenter was born out of. Um, as both of these um, ladies have also chronicled, there've been um, much anti-gay um, protest across the country. And so one issue in Jackson Heights has been a group of protesters against um, uh, Drag Queen Story Hour. So Drag Queen Story Hour is uh, has been around for years, 
we are one of the largest gay meccas in um, the country in Jackson Heights. Also significantly one of the largest gay intersectional meccas, meaning it's a lot of gay people of color who live here. And so our drag queens are also people of color. It's um, important uh, to children and their identities and also um, you know, sort of the assertion of identity, right? We always say you can't see what you, uh, you can't be what you can't see. And so um, there have been these story hours at the library over the last few months, they've been the subject of uh, protest. Uh, the protest about two weeks ago uh, really bubbled over where there was like dozens of protesters. Thankfully, the attendees to the story hour outnumbered the protesters. Our city councilman, when he was coming home on MLK day after a day of service, encountered protesters on his doorstep um, who had all sorts of, I mean, I think you can call them epithets, they're carrying signs and um, they're very offensive. Um, his children are inside and, you know, I, this is New York City. I mean, yeah. this, I just want to really like kind of clarify, like the neighborhood we live in um, has been a haven for immigrant America, for gay America, I would even say for everyone, America, that's what defines us. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's been the last few weeks after the um, elections we saw in New York, where there's definitely a red wave. I think this is another theme of 2023 that we'll be continuing to cover. Um, in the same regard of what Alexandra was saying, like kind of the staff meetings that we have, and this gets Laura to your question of kind of zooming out, how do we think about this as a network? You know, I could report on these protesters at Drag Queen Story Hour, um, but it would sort of be a, you know, there's protesters, there's this side, there's that side, good luck to all of you. And that's really not how Epicenter does things. And so for us, it's how do we continue to affirm our people, but also ensure that they're safe um, and that our neighborhood continues to play the role that, you know, historically it has for this country. Um, and that's like the big question of our news meetings right now. You know, I, 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 I feel like it's actually pretty existential once again. Uh, Alexandra, do you want to come in on this? I know you're covering stories about legislation, anti-trans legislation, Florida, Arizona, you name it, all across the country. What do the people you're covering think we're not getting yet about this story? Um, I think to me, it has a lot to do with siloing. We, we need to de-silo um, what's happening against trans people with what you described, Mitra, as the sort of red wave and the continuing rise of extremist sort of reactionary action. Um, how does it relate, I guess, is one aspect of the story. Yeah, absolutely. I actually did some reporting on the anti-drag legislation that's been across the country. You know, we're seeing drag queens get threatened, death threats, librarians getting death threats for hosting drag queen story hours. It's absolutely horrific. Speaking to the anti-trans legislation that's popping up now, it's only been a month and we're already seeing, I think it's 11 states that have anti-trans legislation on the books. And what's scary about this legislation is they're trying to ban um, transitioning unless you're older than 26 years old. So these are adults, grown adults that are having their autonomy stripped from them, which is absolutely horrifying. Um, and then in addition to that, um, there's anti-abortion legislation that is being considered that could potentially incriminate the, the pregnant person. So it was never, you know, we're, we're 
how it all ties is that it, it's this continued turn to the right. Um, and, you know, we saw that here in Miami. We also had a red wave. Miami was always the Democratic uh, stronghold in Florida. And unfortunately, we went red in the last midterm election, which I'm still, um, you know, recovering from. But it is um, it's very, very concerning. And I think um, we we need to do a better job at pushing, pushing back to the left. How do you see it connected, Malak, in your work? Um, really, one way that we make sure that, you know, our sources' identities are, you know, both reflective of who they, how they identify is um, by just being more, um, you know, in, in the pre-interview, in the first interview, talking to them about who they are and how they identify as well as um, what issues that they are facing. So, for example, a recent piece that I worked on was about our um, riders with disabilities in Detroit who have, who, who don't like the terminology disabled, you know what I mean? They're not, that doesn't define them as a person. And so we wrote about how um, they were facing some threats when it came to um, buses, re the reduction of paratransit buses in Detroit. Um, and that would have that would mean that a lot of people with disabilities across the city would have uh, would have a lot of problems in getting around the city. And so that was a story that I was able to write about. And then the mayor was able to have this emergency plan to really address this um, concern. And it, it, just to talk about the fact that knowing how the people yeah. who I'm talking to identify and knowing how they want to be addressed as well as how what issues matter to them is really important when we go about any story um, at Outlier. It is such a joy to have all of you on and I think that conversation could continue and I'm glad that we get to do these roundtables every month, Mitra. Um, I would love to turn to you. Are there questions that you want to ask our beautiful guests here? And are there priorities you want to make sure that we name before we wrap up this 2023 looking ahead um, preview? I do want to dive into um, the question of growing audience. This is a very selfish question, but in this age of, um, you know, what the heck has happened to Twitter uh, Facebook has said it wants nothing to do with news, controversy, or giving people uh, right information. I guess I'm just wondering um, how you're reaching new audiences, if you have any thoughts on that. Um, for us at Outlier, we, um, other than our documentaries program, we work collaboratively with a lot of newsrooms. That means that our reach is a little um, bigger than just our own reporting and that way we're able to connect to audiences who might be listening to radio or might be reading through a magazine um, and so that's one way that we reach out as well as through our sms service system where we're really one-on-one -on -one connecting with people through text messaging um, specifically because we can't ignore that there is a population out there that doesn't have access to the internet um, and in that way, we're able to still inform these communities and still inform these um, people with what is happening, as well as what issues they may be facing that we might not be knowing about um, through really this one-on-one, um, this one-on-one -on -one, um, communication. And Alexandra, how are you doing it? Uh, I think that is an ongoing conversation in our Slack chat. Um, you know, in the one sense, we are wary of, uh, we are still on Twitter, 
but we are wary of you know what that the implications of that uh given the way elon musk is running his his company um and so in terms of outreach i think we're we have a very um committed and very loyal audience um we have our newsletter we are posting more on instagram and we're just doing our best to stay stay connected to our communities the way that you know we always have through trust and um, honest reporting. Yeah, I mean, Mitra, to answer your question from the point of view of the Laura Flanders show, I will say we've taken a major hit um, from whatever the algorithmic changes have been at Facebook Meta. I mean, it is very hard to reach our online audience in all the ways we used to, because as people may know, when you post a link to an a, a site that is outside of the Facebook meta universe, um, you get deprioritized in everybody's feeds. So if you don't have a huge advertising budget um, and your shows, for example, like this one on public television and YouTube, um, but on public television, they don't have a big advertising budget. Um, you're really up against it. So if you come up with any great strategies for us, let us know. And in the meantime, we're kind of reliant on our audience. So thank you all for being both participants and with any luck kind of um, allies in this joint effort of how do we reach our audiences and grow them and connect them and introduce them to one another. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> okay. I didn't mean to go off on it. I didn't mean to go off on a, on a, I think we're all feeling there, it. But... And you know, um, do we have time for one more question? Yeah, sure. Go for it. One other theme that's come up repeatedly for our epicenter audience that's dividing our communities, which is, um, the migrant um, influx into New York City. And, you know, that public services are under the gun as they're trying to deliver is a very real scenario, whether it's um, educators or um, hospitals that are seeing an influx. Part of our community continues to use the refrain, we came in the right way. Um, this is, of course, an immigrant Jackson Heights. Um, the right way, you know, during my father's time in 1971, green cards were plentiful. That's no longer the case. And so I think there's a question over the right way in 1971 versus 2023. I just wonder how you all are covering this. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say we're, we're three either immigrants or children of immigrants or how this is playing out in your communities. If, if I may, um, I'm actually working on a story um, about the latest Biden administration policy on uh, folks arriving at the border. So now if you're from if you're coming from Haiti, if you're coming from Cuba, if you're coming from Nicaragua, if, and if you arrive at the border, you're immediately going to be turned back. Um, and it's it's just. The, the rhetoric that I'm hearing as well in Miami is the exact same. Well, our, our people came the right way, but the infrastructure is not nearly the same and we're not being met with the same resources as you know our ancestors were or our parents were. Um, so it's scary. And a lot of the advocates that I speak to and a lot of the immigrants that I speak to are scared because human lives are being politicized, essentially. 
you know, Ron DeSantis and um, Governor Abbott in Texas are playing political games with people's lives, putting them on a one-way flight to Martha's Vineyard or to New York City and essentially saying good luck and figure it out without any concrete resources being available to them. So I think um, the way that I'm, I'm covering it, I'm doing my best to speak to people who are directly impacted um, with being careful not to, you know, get anybody in trouble. A lot of the times they want to stay anonymous um, or, uh, you know, speak under uh, a pseudonym. It, it's, you, we have to be careful when we're covering these stories because, you know, people's lives are genuinely at stake. And Malak, to you, and I, I haven't forgotten that you said you're Palestinian-American, and that's a story. The story of what is happening under the new uh, extreme right government in Israel is one that is heating up just now and we know is infamously um, challenging, let's just say, for our media to cover fairly. Definitely. Um, so under my scope of reporting, I'm not focusing specifically on any of this. I'm mostly just doing local government um, and city government or in, in county government, I'm sorry. Um, but of course, like as a Palestinian American, as an Arab American, as a Muslim American, I am um, in tune with a lot of the rhetoric across the country, as well as, you know, local immigrants here. We have a lot in Detroit, as well as surrounding communities like Dearborn, who houses the largest Arab American community in the country. Um, so these are topics that do come up throughout. And we definitely, it, it had we, if we are covering these stories, we would double check and make sure that we are um, you know, being sensitive as well as be, knowing that a lot of our sources as well um, wouldn't really be that comfortable speaking to media, um, which is un very understandable. One story that I was trying to um, pursue was really um, talking to local Im to, to immigrants in Detroit about um, having trouble accessing these vital documents in order to um, get their driver's license or get uh, to be able to vote and to get their citizenship as well. And it was really hard to really pin down um, some people who were willing to speak to the media. And of course, it's understandable due to their circumstances. So um, I, Alexandra and Mitra talked a lot better about it with their coverage areas, but here we definitely do keep it in mind when it comes to Detroit. All right. Well, we are stronger together. Thank you all. And a quick correction for me. It's not 80,000 in a month, but 80,000 in a year that have come into New York, according to the mayor in his visit to El Paso uh, at the new year. I thank you all. And I thank you, uh, Mitra, especially for your continuing collaboration in this Meet the BIPOC Press monthly roundtable. It's a pleasure to have you part of our lineup. Thank you, Laura. Thank you thank so much. You.